0: Welcome to Getting Personal with Daphne Bugler and Isabella Hobbs, your go-to podcast for all things emotional. Tune in weekly as we are joined by familiar faces from the worlds of sport, music, film, activism and everywhere in between to talk about how emotions have shaped people's lives. Hello. Hello. And welcome to our very first episode of Getting Personal with Daphne Bugler and Isabella Hobbs. Daphne, I can't believe this is our first episode. I'm so excited. Isabella, why don't you tell us who our very first guest is? Our guest today is a television presenter and journalist. You'll recognise him from BBC sports coverage of Formula One Grand Prix. Presenting BT Sport Football and covering the 2008 Beijing and 2012 London Olympics. You might even remember him presenting CBBC's Bamzuki from 2004 to 2006. These days, alongside his work with BT Sport, he's also the director of Whisper Films and hosts a high-performance podcast with Professor Damien Hughes, where he delves into the lives of high-achieving, world-class performers. Today, we're getting personal with Jake Humphrey.
1: Whose idea was the podcast? Which of you came up with it?
0: Oh, so we wanted to kind of do something as a project together. And we we talked about a lot of different ideas, but this, the kind of talking about emotions is what we do all the time anyway. So kind of developing it into this podcast idea where we talk to guests about emotions and... um, the kind of the poignant experiences that that come with those emotions um it seemed like the most natural step next step didn't it yeah definitely I think we want to hear a bit about your podcast um which I absolutely love so could you tell us for any of our listeners who haven't maybe tuned into you yet can you give us a bit of a sort of rundown about what you do and who you speak to and how that kind of came about for you
1: Yeah, of course I can. So um, I host a podcast um, called the High Performance Podcast. And obviously, I guess most people would know me as a sports presenter on football now. But before that, Formula One and Olympics and bits and pieces. And I guess there are probably two types of people that do my job. There's the people that really, really, really love the actual sport and they really care about who wins a specific game and the tactics and the formations and how it happened. And then I think you get people like me where it's much more about the people that are involved. I think... I think you really struggle. I think to be a TV presenter or to do the job that you to do to be a journalist without without really having an interest in people. And I guess that's maybe why you started your podcast because you are just genuinely interested. And I love the idea of getting close to and tapping into really high performance individuals. And I know that I'm primarily a sports presenter, but I never want my podcast to become a podcast about sport. I think it's a podcast about life, and there are some really sort of difficult lessons that come out of it, but. I think really good lessons you know if i was to pick up on the, the sort of single biggest thing i guess that's come out of the conversations we've had and we're now kind of halfway through our second series it is fault versus responsibility it is a recurring theme on our podcast that people live a life where they're constantly blaming certain things that happened for not being able to achieve what they wanted or for their own happiness or whatever and high achieving people have ignored the blame game doesn't matter where the fault lies it's still their responsibility to deal with it and we're talking about like really serious stuff you know a physical disability a personal trauma um, financial problems mental health problems all of these things that of course are not someone's fault but what you often find from talking to these individuals who've achieved so much is that they've, they've said yeah of course it's not my fault to deal with those shitty things that come our way but it is my responsibility to deal with it.
0: Definitely. I get what you're saying about like being so interested in people. And one thing we'd like to talk to you about, I think we kind of we're running through our guests through conversation about all the emotions from fear, um, anger, love, happiness, and sadness. Those like the core ones we've pulled out. So something I'm really interested with you and what you do and how it's such a high pressure environment that you work in. I can just only imagine the first time that you did a, you know, national broadcast or that you were on live TV, what was that kind of sensation like for you?
1: Super scary and fear is absolutely the right word. I think do you know what, I think what's really interesting is that my relationship with fear has changed quite a bit as I've got older and I'll tell you what, it's because I know myself so much better now. So I know that I have a fear, I've got two little children, they're aged seven and four, right from when I was a really young guy, um, like level GCSE age I remember like my mum would go for a walk with the dog after school and I would have this mad panic if she was any more than 15 or 20 minutes that some horrendous thing had happened to her and if it was a genuine fear you know it was an irrational fear of course it was um but I'd be so anxious till she got home you know I had all these images of like what horrendous things could have happened to my mum and now I have that same thing with my kids so the other day my son had like, this lump on his foot and it turned out he banged it on the bed but as soon as I saw this lump like the fear of oh my goodness right I've got a son and he's got a lump and what could it be and my brain races like 30 steps ahead but as I've got older I've equipped myself with the knowledge that I am, I have this and it is just a trick it is my brain playing a trick I mean I'm sure my wife won't mind me mentioning that she suffers a bit with anxiety one of her things is like a social anxiety like eating out and she went she's kind of much better now but when we were younger she go, I just can't I just can't go out for dinner tonight I just have this fear of I don't know what it is but I can't and I used to say to her it is your brain just simply playing a trick on you it's not real, this fear is not a real thing, um, so I think as I've got older I've learned so much about myself that I like. I don't let that kind of fear bother me so much, but then I get into this weird thing where how can I not be scared of being on the television in front of millions of people, and I think that what I've used, again, because like, it can be totally debilitating, right, to have fear so I think it's really important to work hard to equip yourself with the tools you need to deal with it, and I think the tool I use to deal with the fear of doing my job well there are two the first one is I kind of believe that it was always fate that I would end up you know right to this point here talking to the two of you really on this podcast like this path was kind of set for me because when I was doing my A levels I completely fucked them up I got an E an N and a U And my mum was a teacher at the school where i was studying and it was like i came from quite an academic family it was a big deal to get my a levels and go to university and everything and the day that i failed my a levels my mum and dad had someone visiting and this lady was sort of she believed that she had sort of powers to see like beyond where we're at now like seeing into the future she kind of was really at one with the universe and things and she said to me she said you won't even realize this now failing your exams is the best thing that's ever happened to you and you'll find out in the future. Now, that might just be a really nice thing to say to someone and it probably is because what's the point in making someone feel anxious or nervous, right? because it was already the worst day of my life, by the way. I'd come home, my dad had the champagne in his hand. And I was like, Dad, you can put the champagne back in the fridge. This is not a day for champagne. I know. Honestly, Isabella. It was that bad. They were like, at the door, you know, what you're like as parents, waiting for this great moment. I said, put that back in the fridge. And then when I... I then decided to redo my A-levels, right? So I went back to school to redo these exams, which I guess there was a bit of fear involved because suddenly there I was with all the younger kids having to redo them. And it was like, it was basically really embarrassing. And the day that I went back, my politics teacher had a letter from a local TV company. And it was a it was asking, People studying politics just in that one class to go onto a TV show and talk about sort of political issues for students. So I went down to meet with them and I said, "Look, I, I'm not really selling myself that well here, but I've completely failed my A-levels and I'm redoing them, which means all my mates have gone off abroad. They're having gap years. They've gone to uni, and I was, you know, getting photos because this was like before the days of mobile phones and photos coming through on WhatsApp and whatever. They would like take photos, develop the prints, and then send them to me in the post and go." this is what we did last week and I was like oh my god I'm stuck in Norwich and you lot are like in Manchester living the life of a student so I asked if I could do some extra work at, at this TV channel and that led to work experience that led to my first job that led to eight years on kids TV and that led to Formula One and I'll never forget the day that we went on air in Australia for the Australian Grand Prix it was the first time that Formula One had been back on the BBC for a long time the BBC had paid millions of pounds for it they then decided the guy that should front it should be a kids TV presenter and the day that it was announced I was the presenter my wife rang me in floods of tears and I said what's the problem and she was crying and through the tears she went I've just been on the internet and this is like the early days of the internet this is like 2009 this is a decade ago I've just been on the internet and everyone thinks you're going to be shit right and I said where did you read that? And she said, uh, on the BBC Sport website, so there used to be like this thing called the 606 Forum on the BBC Sport website. And on the very website for BBC Sport, who I was now working for, there was this great, thread of people going, I can't believe they've given this kids TV presenter the the job as a, as a as a Formula One presenter, but I'm telling you now what got me through was that as I was standing in the pit lane, and it's quite a lonely experience being a, being a broadcaster, particularly in sport, because you're not in a studio you're out in the pit lane, you've got cars roaring past it's blazing heat you're having to wear full ear defenders in your earpieces because the cars are so loud so you feel quite detached from your pundits the production team are in a TV truck about a kilometre away you know there's millions of people all watching at home you know they're going to make their opinion on whether you're any good at that job in the first two or three minutes of what you say and how you do it you know your boss has taken a big risk to give you it you know you've only signed a one-year contract and if this goes badly the chances of trying to have a long-term career in television are relatively slim and as I stood there in the pit lane and I heard the chain which was like the BBC Formula 1 theme at the time I just thought to myself I'm only standing here now because i failed my A-levels and that took the fear away completely and I've probably used that ever since you know that I just feel like this journey was kind of thrust upon me and that would be my advice really to anyone listening to this who struggles with the fears that A, really know yourself so now when I you know like if I have a pain somewhere and I immediately I know myself like immediately it is a terminal illness and I'm like everyone else I go on google I read oh my goodness this is it it's all over for me but what takes away that fear is that I know I'm like that I know I'm a hypochondriac right and equally in my job I know that I only got there because things worked in my favour and having those skills to kind of take away fear, for me anyway, is a really sort of vital part of how I live, I think.
0: That is such an incredible series of experiences leading up to where you are today. And I completely agree. I think what what a phrase that I kind of cling to in in moments of anxiety or the fear, like you said, is um, things happen for a reason. And it's so right. Like, if you, yeah, what would have happened if you'd done amazing in your A levels and you'd gone to university and you'd launched a different career? Like, you would not be sat here today. Like, it's, it's very much kind of like that butterfly effect, like the tiniest little thing.
1: And I also think, like, what is the point of thinking otherwise anyway? You know, I th- some of these mental tricks are, they might not even be true. That lady that was at my parents' house the day I failed my A levels, she might not have known anything. But what is the point? sort of adding there's enough pressure on on us right in this life what's the point adding to the pressure yourself by not saying that you know i love the phrase you're exactly where you're meant to be you know it's great because it just kind of relieves pressure straight away and i I think that's we should all be a bit kinder to ourselves it's a so it's a nice mantra i think that
0: have you ever had a moment where you're on live tv and everything's just gone wrong like where it's just been like chaos and you sit there and there's like that panic sits in and how if you have been through that how do you then get through it when you're in the moment and it's that like sudden I don't know anxiety that comes
1: definitely it happens all the time I mean I there's um you two are probably too young to remember the legendary sports presenter a guy called Des Lynham do you remember him you remember the name? Yeah, the
0: name rings like, a bell. So when I was yeah. a kid
1: growing up, he was like the doyen of sports broadcasting. And when I first had a meeting at, at the BBC about wanting to be a sports broadcaster, that was the name I mentioned to him, I said, look, I want to be the next Des Lynam. And he, he described being a sports presenter as doing a high wire circus act without a safety net. And he is totally right. You know, we are, we're constantly on the very edge when you're a sports broadcaster because you're often not in a studio you've not had time to rehearse you're on location you don't know what's going to happen and you know just during lockdown we carried on broadcasting I've got a little building in the garden here in Norfolk and BT Sport put some equipment in but because of the shutdown we were having to operate in a way that no one had ever operated before so we were using our mobile phones to try and broadcast from and I'm telling you we were live on air and almost permanently I was losing the the very limited talk back that I had Um, the key for a TV presenter is to have a monitor of what's going out at home as long as you've got a monitor showing you what the audience at home can see you're kind of all right because at least you can talk over the pictures well my monitor kept freezing so I would be talking about graphics for a big Champions League night or results or something and all I would see is like a freeze frame of my own face from three minutes before and it hasn't changed for three minutes and I'm just sitting there thinking I'm just having to guess what's going on here well there was a moment where I was about to introduce Rio Ferdinand as one of our guests and I glanced down at the screen that he was meant to be on and it was just totally black and I was like oh no his connections failed and, ju- and I, thankfully I spotted that because the information that his connection failed would have been too late so I immediately was thinking right I'm not going to do that and I, the key for me the trick for me and this is probably a, a, as useful in life as it is for being a TV presenter is just slow it down right just take a breath because what I would do in the early days if something was going wrong I'd suddenly sp- start speaking really fast and I'd get all nervous and anxious and then you and it's like, it would be so obvious to the people at home that something's going wrong. Um, whereas now, I like to sort of think that, you th- I'm telling you now, things go wrong every single broadcast because you can't, you know, when you're, when you're doing this kind of broadcasting, you can't have it all perfect and it is live. Um, but the key is that the audience at home don't see it. So I always just try and slow everything down as much as possible. That's the, that's the trick
0: any any time something goes wrong i'm yeah f- fast forward everything panic in the eyes <laughs> you very much kind of like um take a breath and it's all fine Oh, brilliant. Um, We wanted to ask you a bit more about um, how do you still find the passion for the sports that you that you're presenting and you're commentating on? Have you lost any of that original passion? Because like, is it more of a job now to you? Or do you still have that love for the sports there?
1: No I still I still absolutely have the passion. I think that what I have the passion for is is really trying to do a good job and do and do the right job. So um I suppose the way that I have always kept that fire burning is to kind of challenge myself in different ways, I suppose. So I I will absolutely openly admit that when I first left the BBC to join BT sport, the pressure was so monumental for me that there was no, there was no kind of fear again. There we go. There was no fear that, that I, that I wasn't, um, that I wasn't going to not have that fire burning inside me because I'd left the BBC, which is probably the oldest, most famous broadcasting company in the world. When I was, when I first started out in TV, I had this really cool boss. He was like a total maverick. And he said to me once, he said, listen, I'll give you one piece of advice for your life. Never sit in the comfy chair. In other words, never take easy decisions. Right. And so when I got offered the chance to work for BT Sport, I was really happy at the BBC and they were going to offer me another sort of long-term contract to continue what I was doing. But, I would have been sitting in the comfy chair. And so I thought, right, I'm gonna be brave here and, and, and join a new startup TV channel. And I thought I'd made the wrong decision because only about two or three weeks later, they called me in for my first meeting. Bearing in mind the size and the scale of the BBC, I went to the headquarters for BT and they said, oh yeah, all of the BT sport employees are upstairs on the second floor. And I went into this room and there was five people around a desk. And I genuinely thought, oh, my goodness, I have left the BBC with hundreds of thousands of employees and systems and processes and ways of working and channels and networks and stuff. And I'm in a room with five people. But in other ways, it's the single most exciting thing I've ever done, because to take a channel from zero, basically, to where we got to was was super exciting. So there was always a fire in my belly when I started there but then I've now been there for sort of seven years and naturally when you're doing the same thing talking about football working with the same pundits you do naturally get into a comfy chair so I think what I've done in the last few years I've really tried to (laughs) push myself in other areas. So about 10 years ago, I set up a production company called Whisper and we're one of the biggest production companies in the UK. Now we've got about a hundred staff and we make loads of loads of content, but we push ourselves by trying to do the right thing. So we're a real we really, really believe in giving everyone an opportunity. So people who are genuinely underrepresented in broadcasting and in TV, we try and look after them. So um, last night, actually, we we had a documentary on channel four called the talk, which is about the talk that, Black families Give to their children You know for, for the three of us It's probably A slightly different talk About oh you know Look after yourself On nights out If you're a If you're a You know A young Black kid You have to be told Sadly at some point By your parents That life's going to be Harder for you Because of the colour Of your skin And we, we felt it was A really important Documentary to make So we—it's the first time ever that a production company have funded, co-funded a documentary with a UK broadcaster, just because we were so desperate to make sure that story got told. And I think I think we'd all agree. In, at the moment, we're in a really interesting climate and a really important phase of the 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 black movement for for white people as well as black people. I think for black people. They just want equality and they deserve it for us. It's about education. And last night was a sort of real education for me just watching that show. So that's that's an area to push myself. And then just other little bits and pieces, like even doing the podcast was an area where I thought, right, I need to continue to sort of challenge and push myself and not sit in the comfy chair. And then I've just invested in a sustainable eyewear brand, which takes fishing nets out of the sea and plastic out of landfill and turns them into eyewear called Coral Eyewear. So I guess I've kind of diversified really, where there was a time where just being a TV presenter was so bloody difficult and I was so on the edge. And I remember when I first started Formula One, I'd be exhausted at the end of a weekend just from doing the broadcasting. And as I've got older and got used to that job, I think it's allowed me to push into other areas, which is quite exciting. And that's why I I struggle a bit with people when they get to my age, I'm now 41, almost 42. And they start saying, oh, you you need to sort of slow down and settle down and whatever. For me, it kind of feels like the total opposite I, f- I don't know whether either of you have seen Hamilton on the West End stage but Alexander Hamilton sings a song where he says yeah, there's a million things it. I've- isn't it amazing like oh my goodness I just, I replay those songs in the car all the time but you know when so you know um, Daphne when, when he's saying there's a million things I haven't done and he just keeps repeating that again yeah. and again and again. And I'm not giving yeah. away my shot. And then um, Eliza sings that song to him where she says, um, Why do you write like you're running out of time? Like... You two are a lot younger, right? But I'm telling you now, when you get to my age, fuck, you feel like you're running out of time. I mean, I'm not going to calculate it again because I had a look at how many days you have on earth on average and how many I've already used up. My goodness, man. (laughs) I did the maths and I thought, right, I now need to work hard from here on in. I need to get some stuff done.
0: Oh, my God. Oh, my God, that's terrifying. (laughs) It is
1: terrifying. Well, I think the average life expectancy is about 78. So I'm, I'm well over halfway.
0: It was way higher than oh, that oh no I think we were doing <laughs> not good news <laughs>
1: oh, how old are you two
0: very young 23, <laughs> 23. yeah very young 23
1: yeah man yeah 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 you're a quarter of the way yeah. through you've got loads of time left you've got loads of time left <laughs>
0: I love it um, when people say that, actually, when everyone, um, like, when, when you're, like, a child and someone says, oh, you've got so much life ahead of you, you kind of think, uh, no, excuse me, like, I'm so mature, I'm so old. When I yeah. have colleagues that say to me, like, oh, you're so young, I'm like, yes!
1: <laughs> I know, well, <laughs> I've I remember so I remember being the young guy, <laughs> like, I started in telly at 19, I remember being exactly where oh, you are wow, now, wow. and it was always great because whatever I did, I was like, "Oh yeah, I, I got." It kind of it, it it's a bit of a parachute, isn't it? You feel like you've got this safety net of well, I've got loads of time ahead of me, you know, but don't kind of waste it because before you know it, you think, "Wow, that's gone yeah. by so." Like I would honestly say, and I know I just sound like an old man here, right? But from being 23 where you two are to being almost 43, <laughs> those those 20 years have gone absolutely in the click of a finger in the same way that your first 23 years has gone by fast right you both remember probably five Mm -hmm, or six years ago being at uni and it's gone bang it speeds up man it speeds up
0: Mm -hmm.
1: make the most of every minute
0: so if we move on a bit to the emotion of anger so um i'd love to hear kind of your experience with that in general but i just want to ask you quickly about how as a sports presenter and you kind of mentioned before that you have all these people forming opinions of you all the time and that now comes on social media where they're always like their opinion is just coming at you all the time and that can often come in kind of a form of anger how do you cope with it when anger is kind of being directed at you from these random people you don't know and does that ever become too much does like what how do you deal with that on social media yeah,
1: yeah it's, a, it's a brilliant question Daphne and it definitely does at times become too much and I would say that criticism on social media is the single biggest source of stress in my life probably which is saying something when I'm involved in a couple of businesses and I'm on the telly and I've got two young kids and a mortgage to pay and parents who are getting older you know like that is mad isn't it and so I think that I'm kind of jealous of people I know who've made that big decision to just walk away from it. But then it's kind of hard in my job because you need it as well at the same time. I suppose what I really hate is that people form opinions of you with absolutely no knowledge of who you are so the one thing that i get a lot there's two things really people talk about he knows nothing about football but they don't realize that 90 percent of my job is making sure i'm asking the right questions making sure that we're sticking to time thinking about whether both the pundits have spoken enough whether if i lean forwards is there light going across their face knowing the graphic that's coming next the script that was written the day before can i remember it when i link into the break or you know what's the story here what do people at home want to know i'm going on social media because it's a really good source of news and information so I'm gauging people's opinions to that And actually knowing about the ins and outs of the game is not my job. That's why the pundits are there. You know, 90% of what I do is nothing to do really with football. So that frustrates me. And then the other one that I really hate getting is like people, like the word smug gets used loads when people talk about me on social media. And I just, I guess it's because people assume if they did my job, they would be smug because you get well paid and you hang out with footballers and you live a nice life. And it probably looks very easy from the outside. Um, but I just think we have to be so careful chucking those things around. Like I feel really rock solid. I feel more rock solid than I've ever felt in all of my life. But you you still have to think so carefully about how you talk about people on social media. You know, I, Caroline Flack was someone I'd worked with. She came from Norfolk. You know, we were we were still friends and stuff. And I, that's a really good example of people just not not caring enough about the stuff they throw around on social media. And I, in terms of how i deal with it myself um i've got myself into a headspace where as long as i don't get high on my own supply in other words as long as i don't love the positive stuff where people say jake humphrey's amazing then i can also ignore the negative stuff what i can't do is ignore the negative and then believe in the positive stuff so i kind of have to not accept any of it which is a hard place to get to But it's useful The other thing Which I think Is key for it Is is I just feel If someone goes on social media To like have a massive go at me To say that I'm shit at my job Or I've had some Like horrendous messages Come my way on social media Um And I just think, I just feel really sorry for those people because that message is all about them and is nothing to do with me. And if it wasn't, if it was someone else sitting in that chair, they would be the ones that are subject to that criticism because people just seem to carry so much anger with them these days. And I don't have that, you know, I know we're going to come on to talking about anger and that's an issue for me because I just... I feel so lucky and so blessed, but I don't have any anger. Like, I don't have any reason to be angry about anything. And I think... You ha- if you can get to a point in your life where the shitty little things don't get you down like losing your wallet or stubbing your toe or something like that I mean there's a great phrase I saw on social media years ago where someone said if something doesn't matter in five years don't worry about it for five minutes and it's a really good mindset to be in that because we do let these little things get us down um, and we shouldn't so I've dealt with the little stuff and I've never had any really big stuff to be to be angry about, you know, so anger is one of the things that I don't, uh, that I don't have inside me, um, and which annoys my wife sometimes, because sometimes she's like, can we just have a row about something? Sometimes we just need to have a row. And I'm like, I don't want to have a row. I have no reason to have a row with you, um, which annoys her a little bit.
0: Um, I've seen recently it's been going around. There's a petition to get rid of the comment section of the Daily Mail because I think a lot of the time it is targeted on women. It's targeted on women's appearances, and like you said about Caroline Flack, which was just the most awful tragedy. But yet, comment sections like this exist, and it's just people spouting the most vile opinions that shouldn't even. What is the need for that? And yeah, like like I think Caroline had posted on her social media. If you um, if you can't say anything. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but if you can't say anything kind, don't say anything at all.
1: It has an impact as well, because I think when you do a job like mine, the point where you can do the job the absolute best is when you're completely free, where you've got no fear at all. Um, Because if you've got a fear about either embarrassing yourself or saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing, it can can paralyse you quite a lot, right? So I have... You know, I never even had this emotion when I was on Children's BBC because social media didn't exist. I didn't really even have it on Formula One because social media wasn't as as prevalent. But I do now, while live on air, think to myself... Oh, I know it'd be funny. Oh, actually, no, people will really have a pop at me for that. And there's that phrase, isn't there, that criticism is the enemy of creativity. And you just think of all the things all of us could do if we did not give a shit about what other people thought of what we were about to do. And I, th- I think it's a really healthy place to be where you just do like live the complete truth for you. Say what you really think. It's just kind of a superpower, really. Just go at it and really think, no, do you know what? I'm going to stand by what I say. I believe it. It's me. Here it is. If you don't like it, that's fine. You can go and focus on somebody else. And that's a really great place to be, but it's so bloody hard to get there now with social media. Really, really difficult. And you, you have to be really strong to ignore it for too long. But removing the comment section is from something like the Daily Mail is a, is a good idea. It's it's a sad indictment though you know i i'm not a fan of the daily mail but i don't blame the daily mail for that i blame human beings why do we feel the need to drag each other down it's so sad isn't it and that was a, you know another reason really for us to do our high performance podcast we just want to celebrate people there's not enough of that it's all about fucking catching people out now and trying to make yourself feel good by bringing them down horrible horrible
0: Yeah, I think it's so true as well, the idea that if like kind of linking into happiness, that that kind of now has to come from ourselves rather than we can't really be seeking that so much from the people, like you can seek it from people around you, but often when we're faced with so much negativity, you kind of have to find happiness in yourself first. So just moving on to that idea of happiness, what does that look like to you? What kind of, um, what has that meant to you or how has that kind of emotion played a role in where you are today and how have you gone about finding that emotion in your life
1: yeah I mean I would say that I've had a really really happy life I think like a lot of people I've had moments of I'd say I've I've had a period of unhappiness and then a few kind of periods of of tragedy which are kind of a shorter lived period of unhappiness really like I was bullied at school um and ended up having to change schools because of that and that was that was shitty because it was kind of relentless and constant and i think in those days you know we're going back here to like the late 1980s the early 1990s they weren't very well equipped for dealing with that stuff in those days so i remember um my mum and dad writing to the school to say look our son's really unhappy because there's a gang of lads that are bullying him every day so we, had a, we used to have an all school assembly on a Friday and the head of year thought it was a really, really good idea to make me stand up in the assembly. So, I'm, so we've got the whole school from like year seven to year 11 to the A-level students. 1, 500 kids, 600 kids. He goes, could uh, Jake Humphrey stand up, please? So I stand up in front of the whole school. Uh, Jake Humphrey is being bullied can you all stop bullying Jacob Humphrey it's like are you for real oh my goodness like you can imagine the only thing that created right was like instead of that gang of lads knowing what was going on the whole school knew what was going on um and then you just treated like an outcast by everyone including like the year seven kids they're like laughing at you like oh awful. that was awful that was I would describe that as the only period in my life where I was actually unhappy um and then I had a, I've had had periods like my... Sadly, my grandma committed suicide when I was a little bit older. I was about 16 years old. That's a very difficult emotion to deal with when you're an early teen because a grandparent, and I know that because of my kids. Obviously, you've got all four of theirs still, luckily. They are like a rock-solid part of your life because they're not your parents, and they're so knowing and they're so wise and you can have a really different relationship with them. And also they feel kind of invincible because they're like cuddly old people. They're not fragile young people who've got issues and problems. You know, they're, you just think they're totally rock solid and they're, and they're going to be there forever. So for your grandma, who was always a very happy person to do that, it was like, fuck, that shit can happen in this life. Wow, that is how painful life can get. Um, And obviously for my dad, her her son, that was a really sort of a difficult period for quite a long time. Um, And then I've had a couple of friends of a similar age to me who've passed away. And that's also hard. But then in some ways, when that happens, it it is actually a reminder of how fragile life is and that you do have to just nail every single day. And now I would say that I'm the happiest I've ever been. You know, I actually, I actually look back on that that early period of being bullied, um, and and I'm kind of weirdly glad it happened because I think that it, it it like we don't have enough resilience, I don't think, in in life anymore. And I, it's a real it's a real sort of issue for me as a parent. I want to create a couple of young children who really understand what struggle is about, because the one thing I've had to do on the journey from living in a little village in Norwich to being on the TV. It's like, it has been a struggle. You know, I think sometimes people look at me and think, all right, Um, white, middle-class, male, very, you must have had a very easy path. And I think that in many ways, yes, the colour of my skin, the solid rock, rock solid family foundations that i've had um definitely made things easier for me but i still had to kind of scrap from a little village and 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 get to the top of the tv industry which which wasn't easy and that struggle and that that resilience is a really healthy thing to have because i think that these days people start on a path and you almost have to accept that on whatever path you choose there are going to be difficult times right um and as soon as you hit a bump in the road I think a lot of people now think oh well it was the wrong path this wasn't for me I'll go a different route but it's like no this is the perfect place for you to be this is exactly what you should be doing but you've got to expect challenges you've got to expect difficult things and you've got to have the ability to overcome those so I think that early early experience of being bullied probably has added to my happiness now because it's made me realise that you do get these, these times in your life where, whether it's a short bump in the road and a little sort of getting knocked off or a really sort of long period where things feel like they're never going to end, um, they're not bad things to experience.
0: Daphne and I have talked a lot um, in the past about finding happiness in the small things because... Looking for ha- happiness and finding joy when you're in your dark moments, when you're having your blue days, and we've been talking about finding it in the in the tiniest, most mundane things, like. Um, making that perfect cup of coffee in the morning or like when the sun I, I've just had like typhoons in Hong Kong for the past like five days and my window <laughs> is leaking and I haven't seen any blue skies for a very long time and today finally I literally shrieked because I could see some blue sky and that gave me such <laughs> a burst of like that little happiness bubble. Um, so we would like to know what are kind of what are your little... Tiny bubbles of happiness that you see daily um, that are just like the tiny things in the most mundane situations.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, the first one is my kids, because one of the great things about having young children is that they are so excited about everything. Find a spider in the kitchen, their morning is made. Get a pot, get some grass from outside, get some mud, get a pot of water, Tried to feed the spider. I'm not sure it wants to drink a pot of water at eight o'clock in the morning. But like the... The absolute lust for life is is brilliant with young kids. And when I think about the tiny mundane things, it's something that I think maybe a lot of parents miss, right, is that we've already spoken about Hamilton and that, that phrase, running out of time. My kids run everywhere. It's like they're constantly in a rush... <laughs> To get to the next exciting thing So I'm now sitting in my study If I called my daughter like Florence just pop and say hello She wouldn't wander through Like all a bit bedraggled And a bit exhausted And uh, thinking about what else is coming The rest of the day It's like oh, dad wants me And she'd come running Like burst into the room You'd get a cuddle And then I'd say Go and find your brother Oof, Off she goes I died. miss that I
0: miss having that energy
1: <laughs> Man yeah. that is the running thing Running upstairs energy yes You would yeah.
0: only run upstairs You would never walk upstairs holding onto the banister you would sprint those stairs <laughs> yeah she flies i love it i love that you've mentioned um your children jake because i do i work in a kindergarten so um i work with like their age four five some as long as three and it's it's been really difficult because of covid because i've um i've not seen them in uh, i think the last time i had my children in my class it was january so i haven't seen them in person since then everything's been online And um, taking a positive out of this, it really um, revealed to me how much I do love my job because I like after a week, I was thinking, why am I feeling so down? Why am I like every day I'm I'm feeling really down, really blue? And it's because I wasn't seeing them and I wasn't getting those bursts of joy from like, yeah, like, oh, my gosh, I've seen a butterfly. I'm like, brilliant. Let's go follow the butterfly or like they've made some Play-Doh and (laughs) they want to tell me a story or they want to show me something and it really it, it like their joy gives me joy like seeing them smile makes me smile and i think definitely if if you can be around children you should do that as much as possible because they give you such zest for life
1: i, th- I think you're right i think shut down in, in that respect has been a really good thing actually i think maybe it's kind of it's got us back into being at home with the family focusing on little things like i've i've had a lot of people being interviewed where they've said oh, you know, shutdown is, uh, has been great for me because it's the first time in 19 years that I've spent two months with my children. So obviously their children are 19 because more 20, maybe even older. And I'm thinking, that's not a brag. That's not a good brag. Like, what? What? why I know it's not easy because we're all working and we're all busy but spending time with your kids is like for me is the absolute fundamental I mean I work purely to do that you know I have I have one rule and one rule only and it's that no matter what time I finish work and no matter where in the, in the country I am when I finish work I always 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 will make sure that I come home to be with the children to do the school run the next morning and that includes coming off air in Manchester at you know one o'clock in the morning and not getting home till six I'll still wake up do the school run and then i will uh, then i'll go back to bed for a bit but i think it's really important you know i think um yeah i think that is the that is key the shutdown try and take the positives if you can take the positives out of a global pandemic and a coronavirus shutdown for the last 3 months which i think a lot of people have i think that we can start taking the positives out of the other little bits in our lives i really hope that we come out of this as st- stronger human beings i mean if you look at social media it doesn't necessarily feel that way but who knows I'm an eternal optimist that's an emotion we haven't talked about by the way which is probably the biggest part of my armoury optimism no matter how bad something's gone no matter what has happened there's always a new day and it always begins again right Mm. here's a good one for you yeah you have never been as wise as you are now and you will never be this young again so go outside and make the most of those two things
0: love that that's actually, I, that's such a, good note, such a good note to end on because I think that leaves everyone with just a burst of happiness for their day and some inspiration. So um, thank you so much, Jake, for joining us. It's been great. It's been such a pleasure for us to speak to you. And um, yeah, we're so excited about it, so thank you. Thank you so much.
1: No worries at all and take care of yourselves.
0: Thanks for listening to Getting Personal. Don't forget you can like and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. And give us a review and a rating. It helps other listeners find us in the charts. We'll see you next time.